welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Bob Marley. Now let's continue with our story about Bob Marley. Bob Marley had composed three acclaimed essentially solo record albums and achieved a high profile, but lacked any official management to handle touring, publicity, and the business aspects of the music industry. This role would eventually be filled by Don Taylor, a larger-than-life character who learned to hustle as an abandoned child in Kingston and clawed his way into the music business road-managing such performers as Little Anthony and the Imperials and Martha Reeves. He met Bob Marley as the road manager of a Marvin Gaye Jamaican benefit concert in 1973, and hearing that the musician needed formal management, Taylor began a hard sell to acquire the position. After the gay concert, he made the trip to 56 Hope Street and literally got Marley out of bed, again explaining how he should manage Bob's career. Impressed by Taylor's un-Jamaican aggressiveness and possibly understanding that some organization would help successfully get him back on the road, Marley agreed, sealing the deal with a mere handshake. The Natty Dread Tour was unlike any predecessor in that the performers played high-profile venues and traveled in the style that was typical of successful rock acts of the period. Accompanied by a professional road crew, a cook that didn't subject them to fast food, and an avoidance of cheap motels and transportation by cramped van allowed the musicians, especially Marley, to focus on performing and, most importantly, the massive publicity effort put forth by Island Records to support the tour. The rebuilt Whaler's performance, especially the presence of the I-3, was enthusiastically greeted, so much so that Chris Blackwell decided mid-tour to use the Rolling Stones' mobile studio to record the Whaler's performance at the London Lyceum for a future live album. This concert produced a recording of the song No Woman, No Cry, which all of those present at the show describe as electrifying, very much unlike the studio version, and performed anthem-like with the audience accompanying the band. The song made so much of an impression that it was released as a single only two months after the concert and charted in the UK and Europe successfully. The song dealt with Marley's earlier days of struggle and his reassurance to his female companion not to cry about their current circumstance, that they would eventually escape their government yard in Trenchtown, the title Jamaican patois for No Woman Don't Cry. Marley's audiences were a homogenous mix of both black and white concert goers, an indication that his universal message of one love, one country, one people was resonating with the public at large. 
August 28, 1975, also brought news that was quite shocking to the Rastafarian community. The Ethiopian government announced that Haile Selassie, held under house arrest since a military coup d'etat months earlier, was dead from complications resulting from prostate surgery. Immediately, Selassie's doctor denounced the reports as a cover-up for the monarch's murder, which would be confirmed years later as an assassination. However, the Rasta community and Bob Marley refused to believe that the monarch and their all-powerful messiah could be dead. Instead, his immortality had been transformed into some other identity, a newborn child, or perhaps even an animal. To mark this occasion and idea, Marley recorded Ja Live, Ja the Rasta equivalent for God. Lyrics proclaim that although fools say in your heart, Rasta, your God is dead, Ja lives. The song was released as a single, as a solace to the Rastafarian community, of which Bob Marley was becoming a major spokesperson and public adherent. During this worldly intrusion, Marley's life in late 1975 and 1976 fell into the pattern of a traditional musical performer, recording another album, Rastaman Vibration, and plans for another tour. He relaxed at what was now his own home, 56 Hope Road, and met an endless stream of the world's press sent by Island's publicity machine to interview and publicize Marley as the king of reggae music. This effort was a resounding success, with Marley reaching the summit of rock and roll visibility, the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, on August 12, 1976. The article about him had a strangely prescient title, Bob Marley, Rastaman with a Bullet. If Marley was enjoying his new status as a successful internationally prominent rocker, Jamaica itself was experiencing new levels of political unrest and violence. In early 1976, as the country prepared for another national election, paramilitary groups aligned with both parties instigated incidents in which 150 police, political figures, and private citizens were murdered. In June, the Manly government declared a state of emergency, Fearful that the influx of weapons, numerous strikes, negative reports in American media, and the proliferation of anti-government disinformation was a precursor to an Allende Chilean-style coup d'etat. Legislation allowed for summary courts to imprison political opponents and members of the JLP without charge on the grounds that they were intent on violently overthrowing the government. Others fled Jamaica, convinced that they would eventually be killed or imprisoned. As a gesture of reconciliation, Bob Marley announced a concert that would take place at the National Heroes Park, an institution somewhat like Jamaica's version of Arlington National Cemetery. Dubbed Smile Jamaica and meant to unify the country during this stressful period, it was to take place on December 5th. Unfortunately, the Manly government soon announced that the national election would be moved up to December 15th. Meant as an apolitical gesture, Marley and his concert became associated by certain factions with the Manly government and a tacit endorsement by the performer. This perspective was further amplified when the Ministry of Culture announced that it would help produce the event. Telephone threats soon began arriving at 56 Hope Road. Several band members made it clear that they would not perform in such an atmosphere, but Marley was determined not to back out of the event. On December 3rd, he convened the participating musicians at his Hope Road residence, now known as Tough Gong House, to continue rehearsals for the impending show. 
The home was readily accessible from the street, and visitors and musicians dropped in at all hours, guards occasionally providing haphazard security. At approximately 8.30 p.m., with no guards in sight, one, possibly two, compact Datsuns entered through the main iron gate of the residence. Rita Marley was actually leaving in her vehicle and was shot in the head by an occupant of one of the Datsuns. Although an exact number has never been determined, as many as eight armed individuals emerged and entered the mansion. Gunfire erupted, but because Marley was taking a break while other musicians were rehearsing, individuals were scattered throughout the property. He was in the kitchen with Don Taylor and Donald Kinsey, an American lead guitarist who had worked on Rastaman Vibration. Kinsey described exactly what happened next. Please note, an anvil case is a large black, usually rectangular carrying case used to transport speakers and musical equipment. Quote, so two days before the show, we're having a rehearsal at night. It must have been around 8, 9 o'clock, and we had just taken a break. So I was going into the kitchen to get something to drink. It just so happened that me, Bob, and his manager was in the kitchen. All of a sudden, man, we just started hearing pop, 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 pop. People started opening up gunfire. A guy came around to the back door, which was right there at the kitchen, and pulled his gun inside the door and just started shooting. We were in the corner. We couldn't go nowhere. Our backs was pressed up against the wall. Seemed like I could just see bullets come and pass right by me. Seemed like I could actually see the bullets, like it was in slow motion. It was weird, man. But anyway, when this guy pulled the gun back, I felt that I could walk, so I immediately ran and jumped behind a big anvil case that we had in one of the corners. There was already about three or four people back there, and then I saw Don Taylor walking out, and he caught most of those bullets. Oh, he was in bad shape, man. He finally collapsed after losing so much blood. Unquote. Don Taylor was shot five times and was rushed to the hospital. Bob Marley was shot in the arm and the chest, but both wounds were not life-threatening. He was also taken to the hospital, but was ambulatory. Doctors deciding to leave the bullet in his arm where it remained for the rest of his life. His wife, Rita's head wound, was superficial, and a fourth individual, Louis Griffith, was shot on the torso but survived. Blackwell immediately left the country. Don Taylor's condition was serious enough to prompt his evacuation to better treatment facilities in Miami. Marley was whisked to Chris Blackwell's secluded mountaintop retreat known as Strawberry Hill, where he decided whether to proceed with the concert. In the end, the concert took place on schedule, Marley appearing with most of his band members for what was supposed to be only a few songs, but for what turned into a 90-minute performance in front of a peaceful crowd estimated at 80,000 people, one of the largest gatherings in the history of Jamaica. Interviewed later, Marley allegedly stated, The people who are trying to make this world worse aren't taking a day off. How can I? While this possibly apocryphal comment is hard to attribute, the performer certainly backed up its sentiment by appearing in an extremely volatile and dangerous venue, knowing that at any moment his life might be jeopardized again. Nevertheless, Marley was not taking any chances. Only hours after the show, at 7 a.m., he was driven to the airport and a private airplane ride, first to the Bahamas and two weeks later to the United Kingdom. He did not return to Jamaica for almost two years. The attack on the Marley compound remains mysterious. Initially, it was felt that the raid may have been an attempt to punish or intimidate Marley for seemingly endorsing Manley's party. But what would the JLP really stand to gain from murdering Jamaica's most popular cultural hero? 
especially if the assassination was tied to them. It would be political suicide. The CIA has also been whispered as the culprit behind the attempt. But would the CIA have actually sent an amateurish bunch of teenagers who only were on the property for a few minutes and easily could have killed many more people if they were true professionals? Over time, and independent of the Island Records media promotion apparatus that spun the political angle of the story, a more rational analysis focused on a professional soccer player and close member of the Marley entourage who owed large sums to a criminal syndicate over a horse racing scam gone bad. In any case, no one has ever been officially identified, apprehended, or prosecuted for the attack. Bob Marley's 1976 residence in London was much more pleasant than previous visits. He had access to the best recording facilities in the business, courtesy of Island. He lived in an environment so safe the police did not even carry guns. The musical scene was cutting edge with not only newly emerging British reggae bands, the punk movement was shaking up tired, decadent pop music culture. On a personal basis, Marley would be closer to a romantic interest, a Jamaican woman by the name of Cindy Breakspear. Cindy had already met Bob in Jamaica, was the newly crowned Miss World, and had moved to London to begin her reign. Although their relationship would intensify during Marley's time in Britain, producing a son, one of several illegitimate children fathered by the performer, his main focus was the music. As Donald Kinsey had had quite enough of the recent drama surrounding the Whalers, a new lead guitarist, Junior Marvin, was recruited. Marvin would remain with the Whalers well into the 21st century, and his unique style helped with the production of Exodus, the creative breakthrough that in 1999 Time magazine designated as the best album of the 20th century. While this type of praise sounds hyperbolic, the track listing for Side 2 lists in order jamming, Waiting in Vain, Turn Your Lights Down Low, Three Little Birds, and One Love, a veritable mini-greatest hits collection and some of Marley's most memorable music. Perhaps his recent brush with mortality motivated the artist to new heights of focused creativity. The Whalers would tour Europe in support of this album, and by now their entourage was large enough and their reputation big enough that their downtime included pick-up soccer games that were quite spirited and competitive. In Paris, during one of these games, Marley's foot was injured by an opposing player, his big toe gashed seriously enough to cause the removal of the big toe's nail. Told to stay off of it, Marley persevered, performing anyway, the wound never properly healing. The situation deteriorated before a proposed tour of the U.S., and, barely able to walk, Bob went to see a specialist. Recognizing symptoms emblematic of melanoma, the doctor ordered a biopsy, which returned positive for stage 4 acral melanoma, one of the most aggressive forms of skin cancer. Told to have his toe amputated, Marley refused, such a procedure grossly conflicting with Rastafari beliefs. He got a second opinion in Miami, where a surgeon removed some of the affected area, grafted skin from the thigh, and seemingly addressed the issue. With his American tour canceled, Marley turned his attention back to Jamaica. The warring factions behind the violence in the country had come to a realization that this behavior was pointless, and intent on a symbolic gesture, independent of politicians and the government, they were planning a massive concert the One Love Peace concert at Jamaica's National Stadium at Independence Park. It was to take place on April 22, 1978. 
the 12th anniversary of the visit of Haile Selassie. Although one of the goals of concert organizers was to reunite the original Whalers, Peter Tosh agreed to only perform solo, and Bunny Whaler was initially skeptical. Nevertheless, a formidable lineup of reggae performers would be on the bill. Bob Marley met with one of the concert organizers, a literal Jamaican gang leader in London, and also agreed to perform. In February of 1978, in anticipation of the performance, he flew back to Jamaica and again took up residence at 56 Hope Road. The concert was a lengthy affair that began at 5 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday, April 22nd. One of the more prominent performers was Peter Tosh, currently signed to the Rolling Stones record label, and Mick Jagger, despite the hundreds of submachine gun-toting police and military near the stage, was in attendance. The entourages of both Michael Manley, Prime Minister, and Edward Siega, the leader of the opposition, were also in attendance in second-row seats. The conflicting worldviews of Peter Tosh and Bob Marley were obviously displayed during this event. Tosh was a militant whose politics could be described as defiant and rebellious. He peppered his set list with diatribes that were inflammatory and directed at the political clique sitting directly in front of him. Some of the phrases he spoke from the stage included, This is just a system laid down to belittle the poor. Each time I go to jail, it is only poor people I see in there. When Columbus, Henry Morgan, and Francis Drake came here, they were called pirates and were put in our school books for observation so that we could look at and live the life of pirates. I am not a politician, but I suffer the consequences. I don't want no peace. I want equal rights and justice. Some of these words were accompanied by blatant exhalations from a giant cigar-sized ganja spliff. As much of the literal Jamaican government and the international press wondered if a massive riot might ensue, Tosh concluded his performance with Get Up, Stand Up, and then left the stage. After a lengthy respite, Bob Marley began performing, his mannerisms diametrically opposed to Tosh, his music reinforcing the concert's theme of One Love and Peace. During a lengthy improvisation from his band, he was able to induce both Manley and Siega on stage, where all three men clasped hands together, held them upright as Marley rhythmically chanted, Unite! Unfortunately, the gesture and the concert did little to stop the violence in Jamaica. In the election year of 1980, which put Siega in power, 900 Jamaicans were murdered. Within two years, even the two crime lord organizers of the show, Claude Massop of the Phoenix Gang and eventual Shower Posse, and Aston Bucky Marshall, ruler of Kingston's infamous Concrete Jungle housing project, were also killed by violence. Marley would spend the rest of 1978 touring the U.S. and Europe and promoting Kaya, a release of additional songs recorded during the sessions that produced Exodus. A predictable letdown after the remarkable previous effort, the album still featured Is This Love, another Marley standard. He also took some time off in Miami with his mother, who had relocated there after the death of her husband, her home purchased for her by her son. 1979 underlined Marley's attempt to branch out, his band would tour the Far East, including Japan, New Zealand, and Australia. And his album Survival denoted pan-African themes with songs like Zimbabwe and Africa Unite. The 70s ended with Bob Marley as a worldwide celebrity and music superstar. He continued to access unusual venues for his performances, including four shows at Harlem's Apollo Theater and two tumultuous forays into Africa. 
one at the request of the president of Gabon, and the other a celebration of Zimbabwe's newly gained independence. The trip to Gabon was unknowingly a private birthday party for longtime dictator Omar Bongo. And when Bob Marley additionally discovered that his manager, Don Taylor, had secretly negotiated a higher appearance fee and pocketed the difference, he personally pummeled Taylor and fired him upon returning to Babylon. Zimbabwe was also disappointing when giant crowds, unable to access the Salisbury Stadium where Marley was helping to commemorate independence from Great Britain, stormed the gates and forced a response of clubs and tear gas. The band left the venue and only a few, including Bob Marley, returned to give a reserved performance. The next evening, a free concert was performed for another immense crowd, but the show was also half-hearted. Marley's Pan-African perspective had also been dampened by a 1978 visit to Ethiopia, by then a repressive military dictatorship, where Haile Selassie's legacy was officially held in contempt. Public displays of the image of the former emperor were strictly forbidden, and the Rasta god reposed in an obscure, unmarked grave. Marley returned to London, exhausted. Concern was already growing about his physical condition and appearance, but he refused to stop working. After only several weeks, he returned to Jamaica with his band to record music that would be released sporadically over the next two years. Leaving Jamaica for the last time in May 1980, it was off on another exhausting tour of Europe and the U.S. One of the highlights, a gig in Milan's main soccer stadium that drew over 100,000 people, a record that still stands. Bob Marley was delighted to learn that he had drawn many more people than Pope John Paul II a few weeks earlier. Among the faithful, Rastas consider the Pope a symbolically evil figure based on myriad reasons, including the allegation that Pope Pius XI actually blessed the warplanes and troops that invaded and conquered Ethiopia in 1935. Marley took a break after the European leg of the tour and headed for Miami and his mother's home. There he repeatedly complained of headaches and pain throughout his body, but continued to receive only perfunctory medical treatment from members of his entourage. Then it was on to the Northeast, where he played Madison Square Garden as the opening act for the Commodores, another attempt to break through to a mainstream black audience. Following the shows, the tour had a brief respite, and Marley, staying at the Essex House Hotel on Central Park South, decided that he wanted to take a jog through Central Park. As some friends and security accompanied him, he suddenly collapsed and fell to the ground, gripped by a seizure. Although he remained conscious, when a doctor discovered that he had a history of cancer, he was rushed to Sloan Kettering Hospital, among the world's finest. The diagnosis was devastating. Melanoma had metastasized throughout the body, especially within the brain, which contained a massive tumor, most likely the cause of Marley's collapse. Despite his condition, he insisted that the tour continue. On September 23, 1980, at the Stanley Theater in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Bob Marley performed his last concert, the final song fittingly, Get Up, Stand Up. Despite his illness, the 90-minute-plus show was flawless. Nevertheless, the remainder of the U.S. tour was canceled. Marley rushed to Miami to get a second opinion and inform his mother of the news. The prognosis was confirmed and he was given, at most, six months to live. Like many cancer patients, Bob Marley sought an alternative to traditional medicine, desperately hoping for a medical miracle. 
In his case, it was the Bavarian Alpine Clinic of Dr. Josef Issels, where he spent five months pursuing a regimen that included ultraviolet light treatments, coli vaccine, and hyperthermia. Another patient recalled meeting him there. Quote, it was almost like he was in a trance. He spoke slow and pensively and described the beauty of Jamaica, the white sand beaches, the warm sun. He spoke with such feeling and love for Jamaica, he made you feel like you were right there, even though there was three feet of snow outside. By spring 1981, even Dr. Issels told Bob that there was nothing that he could do for him and that he should spend his last days in more comfortable surroundings. Marley left immediately intent on making it to Jamaica, but his condition worsened, and he flew with his mother instead to Miami, Florida, where he was immediately admitted on May 9th to the ICU of Cedars of Lebanon Hospital. There he received a succession of family, including his wife Rita, their children Ziggy and Stephen, as well as Cindy Breakspear, accompanied by their infant son, Damien. His final words to his son Stephen was the enigmatic phrase, Money can't buy life. Bob Marley died on May 11, 1980. His body was transported to Kingston, Jamaica, where an elaborate state funeral at the National Arena included music, biblical verses, and a eulogy by the now Prime Minister Edward Siega. Marley's head was festooned with a wig comprised of dreadlocks to replace the hair lost during his chemotherapy treatments. His wife Rita also placed his Gibson guitar, his Bible, and a large stalk of ganja into the coffin before closing the lid. The coffin was then placed on a pickup truck and driven in a procession to Nine Mile, where it was placed in a temporary mausoleum. An estimated one million Jamaicans, 50% of the country's population, having observed the event. Bob Marley's death predictably set off a dispute over his musical legacy and estate that was complicated by the absence of a will. Rastafari disdained such a document and admission of mortality. Add to this confusion, potentially involving hundreds of millions of dollars, the fact that Marley fathered as many as 13 children with eight different women, and the ingredients were present for what one former estate administrator described as the most complex and difficult estate ever to be administered in Jamaica, if not the Western Hemisphere as a whole. An entire episode could be devoted to the decades of litigation that involved the Marley properties, but fundamentally, upon Bob Marley's death, Rita Marley produced documents that claimed that before he died, Bob Marley signed papers that transferred ownership of various companies from him to her, and therefore these assets were not part of the estate. Without this documentation, under Jamaican law, the estate would have to be divided between her and Bob's children, and certainly would have involved both lesser amounts and control. Involved in this process were a lawyer and an accountant who had worked with Bob and Rita Marley briefly before Bob's death. For six years, Rita Marley, based on this legal situation, received the bulk of the proceeds generated by Bob Marley's legacy, a sum that exceeded $10 million. Eventually, it was alleged by Don Taylor that the documents produced with Bob Marley's signature were actually forgeries, backdated from 1981, that the singer had never signed. Rita Marley immediately crumbled, resigned as an administrator of the estate, and essentially threw herself on the mercy of the court. The lawyer, David Steinberg, and accountant, Marvin Zolt, were sued by the estate and eventually were found to have committed fraud. Subsequently, a joint effort was formed between Chris Blackwell and Rita Marley to properly acquire and administer the Bob Marley music catalog. 
Blackwell even lending her the money for her half of the amount of purchase from the estate. This ensured that at least part of the revenue from Bob's music was distributed to Rita Marley and Bob's heirs. This did not stop various entities from lawsuits involving the Marley estate and copyrights, most notably by Danny Sims, who filed based on the dubious assignment of writing credits to Friends of Marley to avoid the singer's publishing deal with Sims. Although this litigation continued even after the death of Sims and well into the 21st century, the estate prevailed mostly over statute of limitation issues. Rita Marley, the Marley children, and even Sidella Booker all continued performing prominently long after Bob Marley's death. Most notably, Ziggy Marley and his siblings formed the Melody Makers, a band which reached international superstardom in the late 80s and established the Marley children as successful performers in their own right. Even Damian Marley, two years old at the time of his father's death, enjoys a prominent position in the recording industry. Not as prominent are the other Marley offspring fathered out of wedlock. What they received and are entitled to by the estate remains unclear. Rohan Marley is perhaps the most prominent of these individuals. The son of Bob Marley and club dancer Janet Hunt, Rohan was eventually raised in Miami, Florida by Sedella Booker. He played linebacker at the University of Miami and is probably best known as the father of five children with singer Lauren Hill. He is fortunate in that he was awarded one of the six shares of the Bob Marley Foundation given to the children of Bob Marley when the estate was legitimately divided and the foundation formed. Other children do not seem to have fared as well. After being arrested in her Philadelphia area home for the cultivation of marijuana, Makita Janesta Marley, born a few weeks after Bob Marley's death, claimed that she could not afford an attorney. She also maintained that she did not regularly receive money from the estate and had spent any money received. She eventually avoided a jail sentence by pleading guilty. Most disturbing was the fate of Bob Marley's half-brother, who was shot to death in a bizarre incident at a Miami shopping mall. On February 19, 1990, the 19-year-old son of Sedella and Edward Booker, Anthony, was gunned down by police when, armed with a shotgun and wearing a bulletproof vest, he began erratically menacing shoppers until a gunfight ensued. Violence also haunted other former members of Bob Marley's entourage. By September 1987, Peter Tosh had burned a lot of bridges. He destroyed his relationship with the Rolling Stones and the record company when he refused to vacate an Ocho Rios vacation home of Keith Richards and threatened to shoot the stone if he set foot on his own property. Richards called his bluff, and Tosh hastily fled. Previously, only five months after his obscenity-filled tirade at the Peace One Love concert, Tosh was arrested for marijuana possession on a Kingston street. Taken to jail, he received a savage beating which broke his hand and required 30 stitches to repair the lacerations on his skull. On September 11, 1987, Tosh was relaxing in a suburban Kingston bungalow after returning from the U.S., a trip undertaken to try and raise money to finance a tour. At approximately 7.30 p.m., an individual known to Tosh, Dennis Lepo Lobin, was able to gain access to Tosh's residence with two other armed gunmen. Tosh had given money to Lobin for years, the occasional street vendor, one of many leeches and hangers-on that perpetually nagged and conjoled their more successful brethren into financial support. 
Tosh had already rebuffed Lepo earlier in the day, but Lobin figured that Peter must have all kinds of cash after traveling to the States. Several guests were present in the home, and while the gunman began to terrorize and threaten all of them, two more individuals arrived, escorted into the chaos at gunpoint. When Tosh and Marlene Brown, his girlfriend, insisted that there was no money, all three assailants began shooting. Lepo put two bullets into Peter Tosh's head, mortally wounding him. All seven present were shot, and three people died, including Peter Tosh. Only Lepo Lobin was ever prosecuted for the murders. Initially sentenced to hang, he ultimately received a life sentence. Only six months earlier, longtime Whalers drummer Carlton Barrett was killed in a murder that remained unsolved for several years until his wife and her lover were prosecuted for the killing. They did a year in jail before being released on a technicality. Even Junior Brathwaite, an original whaler in the early 60s, was eventually ensnared in Jamaican violence. Having emigrated to the Midwestern U.S. to pursue a medical career, he returned to Jamaica in 1984 after 20 years in the States in an attempt to reunite with Bunny Whaler and Peter Tosh. Tosh's murder ended such plans in 1987, but Brathwaite stayed in Jamaica only to be shot to death at the home of a friend who was also killed during the incident. Of the many individuals who crossed paths with Bob Marley during his life, Chris Blackwell seems to have done the best. In the late 80s, he sold Island Records for $300 million to Polygram, the crown jewel of the label, the band U2. Today he presides over a string of resort properties including Strawberry Hill and Goldeneye, the redeveloped former Jamaican property of James Bond creator Ian Fleming. Time has done nothing to diminish the worldwide phenomenon that is Bob Marley. His continuing popularity is evidenced by the recording Legend, a greatest hits compilation that was released in 1984. This collection has sold over 15 million copies in the U.S. and close to 30 million units globally. It has spent more time on the Billboard 200 album chart than any other album with the exception of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. But the same criticisms that dogged the collection have also been leveled against the marketed legacy of Bob Marley himself, the focus on an inoffensive, blissed-out Rasta singing cheerful tunes of togetherness and love. Bob Marley was more than a popular culture figure. He was a political activist, spiritual icon, and the most prominent symbol of Jamaican nationalism. While Jamaica has enjoyed a bit of an economic resurgence in recent years, it remains mired in perpetual international monetary fund debt and poverty rates hovering around 20%. While he idealistically hoped to lead his people to Holy Mount Zion, it seems Bob Marley and his beloved Jamaica remain firmly entangled in the machinations of Babylon. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Bob Marley. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Catch a Fire by Timothy White. So Much Things to Say, The Oral History of Bob Marley by Roger Steffens. Bob Marley, A Life by Gary Steckles. And Bob Marley, Stories Behind the Songs by Maureen Sheridan. There are also additional photographs, 
bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.